0: Our sermon text this morning is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 and 38. Who is there who speaks, and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? In addressing the children this morning, I hope Aidan's paying attention, This morning we're going to learn something very important. And it's about how to speak about God and how to speak for God. The verses that we just read were written by the prophet Jeremiah. And I hope you remember what a prophet is. In the Bible, a prophet was a minister that God had given a special message to. And Jeremiah had been given a very hard message for the church. In his days, people had stopped going to church to worship God... And they were worshiping other things, statues that were fake gods, things that were just from their imaginations. And Jeremiah's message was that they needed to stop this and return to worshiping God properly. But the people wouldn't listen. And part of Jeremiah's message was that if they didn't stop their fake worship, God was going to make it stop. I suppose sometimes you, you and one of your brothers or sisters have been arguing or fighting, and mom or dad says, stop it. And you go, well, she started it. He started it. And dad says, well, I'm going to stop it. Well, God said, you need to stop this. If you don't stop it, I will stop it. And his way of stopping it was that he was going to send an army that would destroy their big fancy church building that they called the temple. And then they would be taken from their homes and forced to walk to a far country. They actually did. This happened and they walked to a far country that was 1,700 miles away. That's like walking from here to Mount Rushmore and back, and then to Mount Rushmore and back, and then back to Mount Rushmore. And when they got there, all of them, even the little children, were forced to work very hard, heavy work all day, long hours, and no one got paid for their work. Now I know that sounds scary, but we should remember that this is what God warned them would happen if they didn't stop worshipping the fake gods. Now you might be thinking, "Well, why didn't they listen?" It was the minister of God who was warning them. Well, Here's the reason why. There were also other men who were fake ministers that kept saying that Jeremiah's message couldn't be true because in their town they had their big fancy church building that they called the temple. You know how some people carry a rabbit's foot on their keychain and they think it makes them lucky? These people in Jeremiah's time thought of the temple not as a place to worship God but like a, a silly lucky charm, like their rabbit's foot. And they thought that as long as they had the temple, nothing bad could ever happen to them. Now, we're Christians, and we know there's no such thing as luck because God controls the world because he made it. Now, these people should have known that, too. They had their Bible. But this is what happens when people stop worshiping God. Their minds become full of really strange ideas, and they, forget. they start to forget about God, And they start to act like God isn't real and that he doesn't see and hear everything that they say and do and even what they think. So when the fake ministers told the people, man, don't worry, nothing bad's going to happen to you. We've got the temple. They believed those fake ministers. That's what they wanted to believe. There are still fake ministers today, and we need to be careful about that. And when you listen to the sermon later, I want you to pay close attention to some of the things I'm going to say Toward the end of it, because sometimes if we're not careful, we ourselves can become fake ministers. How? When we let our own ideas and our own feelings tell us what to do and how to live instead of listening to God's word in the Bible, the verses that we read tell us that we can always be sure that when God promises something or when God warns us of something, It will happen. And if someone says that what the Bible says isn't true, we can know for sure that that person is a fake minister. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good. And thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, in order to do justice to the multiple lessons that Our text contains, Lord willing, I intend to preach from it for the next several weeks. In this sermon, I want to demonstrate that because the first half of verse 37 is rhetorical, it implies that this prerogative of speaking and it coming to pass belongs to none but God Almighty. And we'll assess in a cursory way the twin doctrines of creation and providence, and by way of application, we'll be warned against presumption in speaking in God's name. Uh, Let me hasten to add that this whole book is a reaction to an outpouring of divine displeasure. And I'm not overlooking that, I'm just saving the question of how we're to react to divine displeasure when we're on the receiving end of it to the final sermon in the series. Our second sermon will deal with what the passage means when it says, speaks, and it comes to pass. The third sermon will seek to address the thorny issue of how God's sovereignty over all things relates to men's Good deeds. The fourth sermon will uh, attempt to tackle the even thornier question of how God's sovereignty over all things relates to men's evil deeds. And the fifth sermon will bring the four previous ones to a close with a practical application where we, we will be exhorted to live in peace and contentment with divine providence. Now, by way of introduction, I want to say a few things about the book itself. Jeremiah is called the Weeping Prophet primarily because of these lamentations. But if you could put yourself in his shoes and witness the death and destruction he saw, you'd weep too. But these lamentations are not wild, uncontrolled outbursts of manic emotions, and this can be seen in the structure of the book. No doubt you've noticed that chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 have 22 verses each, and then chapter 3 has 66 verses which is 22 times 3. And that's because this is an acrostic poem. And it's an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet, which has 22 letters. So each verse starts with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 gives three verses for each letter, hence 66. Chapter 5 is not an acrostic, but it keeps the form in order to maintain the poetic structure of the book. And I say all that to say this. A book this carefully and precisely composed would never be, could never be, a wild unrestrained burst of uninhibited emotions. And that's just a really long way of saying that these words have been carefully chosen. They're not merely the ravings of a man who's witnessed murder and bloodshed, They're the words immediately given to Jeremiah by the Holy Spirit and therefore they are to be treated not as subjective expressions of emotion but as objective statements of truth. So our first question is to whom do those words, who is this, apply? I want to note that the Hebrew wording for who is this is spoken in kind of a belittling, slightly sarcastic, maybe taunting way against mere speakers We might expand it a bit this way. Who do any of you mere mortals think you are? Can any of you speak and by simply speaking bring your will to pass? So who are the potential candidates? Who are the mere speakers? Well, let's start, for instance, and ask, what about good angels? Well, obviously no, because whenever angels speak in Scripture, they utter the words given to them by the direct command of God. They don't offer editorials or opinions. They never speak a word from their own minds and that's why their words unfailingly come to pass because the words they speak aren't their words. And what about evil angels? Well, whenever demons speak or even Satan speak in scripture, they utter lies. John eight forty four, And thus their words do not come to pass. Even Satan's prediction about Job turned out wrong. If you remember the story of Job... You'll recall that Satan had predicted that Job would turn from God if he lost his temporal goods. And any reasonable betting man would have had his money on Job turning from God, and it didn't happen. Satan could not predict the outcome, nor can he affect the outcome of events. All things are ordained by God. Well, what about men? Well, the only men who have ever spoken with absolute certainty that their words would come to pass were the prophets And the apostles, when they spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and like the angels, they were only speaking the words that God had commanded. Now, we've said a lot here, but the reality is this statement is meant to be rhetorical. In other words, there is no one, no mere creature, who can speak and bring to pass what was spoken. The ability to speak and bring to pass is a prerogative of God's alone. Only he has the power to create and infallibly direct what he has created according to his plan. So when we say that this statement is rhetorical, what we're saying is that we ought to read it like this. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass and then say, no one but God? And that's obviously correct because the passage then adds the words unless the Lord has commanded it. In Reader's Digest form, that's kind of like, unless the Lord has commanded it, it doesn't happen. And this is one of the strongest statements in Scripture regarding or declaring the irreversible nature of God's decrees. What, you ask, are God's decrees? Westminster Shorter Catechism Question 7 answers that question this way. The decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory He hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That is a thoroughly biblical statement. Uh, think, for instance, of the following verses from Scripture. Ephesians 1.11 In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will. How about Acts 4, 27 and 28? For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. And Ephesians two ten: For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now let's look back at that first verse for a sec, Ephesians 1.11. It is not just saying that whatever God does, He does according to His plan. Rather, it's saying that all things happen according to God's sovereign plan. It explicitly tells us that whatever events take place in the world, they take place according to the purpose of Him, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Nothing happens by chance. God is not the watchmaker of the deist who just winds up the clock, the universe, and then stands back in a hands-off posture, never getting involved in the affairs of his creatures lest he thwart their little plans. Reformed theology has always recognized that God rules over the affairs of men, Uh, better yet, that he Rules over all things, including the affairs of men. He is not a God who reacts to men's free acts, but rather a God who has decreed all things for his own glory. And this predestinating and ruling of all things in order to achieve his desired ends, he accomplishes by creation and providence. Creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. In other words, creation is God bringing all things into existence by the word of his power, and providence is God upholding and governing what he has created by the word of his power. Our beloved Heidelberg Catechism defines providence this way, and I double-dog dare anybody to top this definition, The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now since the final sermon in the series will be specifically dedicated to uh, contentment with divine sovereignty or submitting to God's providence, I won't spend time looking at that aspect of the issue this morning, but rather just on divine sovereignty and providence itself. And I want to state things in general terms because in some of the later sermons we're going to tackle specific cases of divine sovereignty, specifically in relation to the acts of men. Next week, I intend, Lord willing, to look at what is entailed in these words, speak, and it come to pass. So our focus won't be on that aspect necessarily this morning. Now, I want to preface what I say by noting that the specific application of these words is to God's chastising of His wayward church. Jeremiah writes these words as he is surveying the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar had set up a siege against the city and had driven the people to near starvation. And finally it got so bad that a cowardly attempt was made by King Zedekiah and his army to sneak out of the city under the cover of night. And once this happened, the defenses of the city were breached and the Babylonian army poured in like a flood. So there's a real sense in which the phrase, speak and it comes to pass, has to be viewed in reference to the constant warnings of the prophets and of Jeremiah in particular. Eleven times in the book of Jeremiah and once in Second Chronicles, which I think is closely related to Jeremiah, either written by him or under his direction, God reproves Judah for ignoring his repeated warnings and he says, I sent my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them saying, return ye every man from his wicked way. So long, long before Judah's sin got way out of hand, God had sent his prophets to call his church to repentance. Now, the false prophets had nullified these warnings by superstitiously appealing to the temple. They sued the people's unease by saying, as Jeremiah puts it kind of, sarcastically, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as if they were somehow invincible because of the presence of the temple. And They prophesied peace, peace, when the church at large was living in rank apostasy. A significant portion of the book of Jeremiah is dedicated to refuting the words of the false prophets, and he nearly always casts the matter into terms of truth versus lies. What these false prophets had said most definitely did not come to pass. And it's as if God is saying, you can prophesy peace until you're blue in the face, but I am the only one who can speak and guarantee that what I say will come to pass. In fact, this destruction of Jerusalem is proof that only I can do it because I've been warning you that this would happen for generations now. Your false prophets have been telling you that the yoke of Babylon would be broken. And that didn't come to pass, did it? What I said did come to pass. So what we have here, by way of application, is a warning against presumptuous speech in God's name. Now, as someone who has been active and interacted with people on social media, it has become increasingly obvious to me that many people have no qualms at all about putting words in God's mouth. How many times have you read a post that says something like, God says X, Y, Z, and whatever God is reputed to have said is not in Scripture. It really is a species of violating the third commandment, which is taking the name of the Lord in vain. God's name, (coughs) excuse me, is whatever it is by which he makes himself known to us. So whether it be the scriptures misinterpreted or or misused, used as punchlines for jokes, or otherwise treated as less than what they really are, whether it be disrespectful use of God's name, presumptuously claiming to speak for Him, abusing the means of grace, the word, prayer, the sacraments, these all fall under this category of violating the third commandment and we're thinking specifically of presumption in the name of the Lord and this is at least one of the uh, lessons of our passage because it was one of the great sins of the false prophets of Judah who were Jeremiah's rivals generally speaking we're dealing with a variety of violations of the third commandment more specifically we can see that the exact form of taking God's name in vain is the presumption of speaking in his name or on his behalf when he has not commissioned one to do so. And this is a subject that gets little to no attention in our day. Now, it would be easy to attack the strange behavior of the charismatics who are always claiming to be getting new revelations from God, but since that doesn't apply to us, I suppose there's no need to go there. Let me just say this, though. No one has ever presented a case for the existence in the church of prophets who are in a distinct class from the Old Testament prophets. And that alone is sufficient proof that anyone who comes along claiming to speak for God as a prophet today is always a false prophet. Prophets either write scripture or their words are written in scripture by somebody else, period. If Brother Bob Jenkins' words can't be added to my Bible, then we either excommunicate him or he agrees to church discipline and stays quiet the rest of his life again we're not charismatics we're not claiming to be getting new revelations from God all the time so where this seems to me to be applicable to reform folk like us is when we try to put other things in Jesus place or when we seek for God's guidance in ways that have no connection with his written word now the big issue for many people is that they want another way to relate to God that is Another mediator than the one God has provided. A mediator is a go-between. And the mediator that God has provided is his own son, Jesus Christ. So as our mediator, Jesus is how we relate to God. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. I have looked at dozens and dozens of church websites, and I'll tell you what I see. Things like music and instruments and song styles and all sorts of other things being hailed as different ways that we relate to God. I'm here to tell you that that is a lie from hell. There is only one way we relate to God, and that is through His Son, our mediator, Jesus Christ. Music is not our mediator. Rock bands and smoke machines are not our... Mediator, Entrancing rhythms that evoke a lot of hip swinging and hand raising are not our mediator. Our mediator is Jesus Christ. He and he alone has the words of eternal life. And a lot of people imagine that, you know, something gave them goosebumps and a big rush of emotions and this must somehow be God's thumbs up to the method that produced the goosebumps. I know that sounds bizarre, but... The idea that you're relating to God through anything else but Jesus by means of God's written word is idolatry didn't Jesus say no one comes to the father but by me now as for people seeking God's guidance in ways that have no connection with his written word let me say this there is no decision that we will face in life where we are left to our own devices to try to figure out what God would have us do. We don't need to magic eight-ball God into giving us a sign. Lord, if it's your will, please let the kitchen light flicker or something like that. Or, you know, simply thinking, you know, I just suddenly, I had this sense of peace. This must be God's will for me to do this. Let me give you a real-life example of what I'm talking about. Let's say you're a high school student and you're thinking about college. You have two possible schools you can go to. And in regard to one of them, your parents have already expressed concerns or perhaps they've actually said they prefer you don't go there. Now, you don't need to pray and ask God to give you a sign about his will. God's word explicitly commands you to honor your father and your mother. So if choosing one college is contrary to the express desires wishes of your parents it doesn't matter how much of a sense of peace you think you have about it it can't possibly be God's will because he will never will that you dishonor your parents you see understanding God's will is a lot less mysterious than people make it out to be but if you don't he's expressed his will in scripture and if you don't read it or study it and you're not familiar with his contents, well, then how could you possibly know his will? And that's where you're going to be tempted to rely on the magical feelings of peace or signs. To think that God will speak to us apart from or in addition to scripture is to say that scripture isn't sufficient. But in that case, you can hardly be called a Bible-believing Christian. You're certainly not a Reformed Christian because one of the great hallmarks of the Reformed faith, has always been belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. Relying on liver quivers or feelings of warmth or peace or what have you, that ain't Christianity, that's old-fashioned paganism. Now you may be thinking, okay, how is Pastor Andy going from the presumption of speaking in God's name to relying on feelings as indications of God's will? It's kind of direct, actually, because when you rely on your so-called, your feelings or your so-called sense of peace or what have you about a decision, you're substituting your feelings for God's word, and you're letting your own feelings speak in his name. Now, because of my varied church and ministry experience, I've been around people that have a lot of really weird beliefs, quirky ideas, and bizarre teachings. And I've noticed many times when they're cornered into explaining them, they don't appeal to scripture. They appeal to some mystical experience they had. And that's the clinching argument for their idea. They just, I just really feel like the Lord just showed me that, you know, fill in the blank is true. Now for them, for charismatics, that's normal. I can't fault them for such weak response. Well, I can fault them, but that's beside the point. I'm just alarmed at the number of reformed people that I encounter who use such language. What do the scriptures say? I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. That's why I'm astounded at the number of people who claim to be reformed that have been infected by this jargon. And you hear it all the time. The Lord told me, I just sense in my spirit that, you know, really? This is unacceptable. Let's reread verse 37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? So we can be sure of two things. Only what God says will come to pass and what God has said will certainly come to pass. So the big warning of this passage for us is against our insatiable desire to rely on other sources of truth rather than God's word. God has spoken through the prophets, apostles, and his own dear son. Let us be content with that. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Merciful Father, this morning we remember our members who are sick and are shut-ins, and in some sense these past few weeks have made us understand in a small way their sense of isolation. We therefore beseech thee that thou wouldst again grant us the privilege of gathering together in this thine house to worship thee and to benefit from the fellowship of the saints. We acknowledge thine overruling hand in our situation, and we bow in submission to thy wisdom and thy disciplining rod. Grant that we may benefit from thy providence in our time of isolation, and make us glad when it is said to us, Let us go unto the house of the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we make bold to pray the prayer you taught your disciples, saying,